great snowstorm of 2017. You folks down here in Alabama may or not have got so much snow, but we got this much. But it was. It's pretty when it snows. This morning we're in 1 Samuel chapter 4. Uh, as we get into uh, the prophecies that accompany Samuel, uh, God has raised up Samuel. He has sort of put Eli and his sons on the shelf, and they will actually die in this early part of chapter 4 here. But Israel has gone for many years with what we would call out-of-control worship. They're in spiritual chaos in Israel. It has got so bad that everybody is doing what is right in their own eyes. And the trouble with that is most people need guidance in worship. We have guidance in worship. We have the Word of God. I'm so grateful for His Word that leads us and guides us and instructs us. But Eli, the high priest, he has judged Israel for 40 years. But that's about to end. Eli and his sons will both die on the same day. Just as the traveling man of God, the prophet of God, that came by and told Eli... And most recently, we have Samuel, uh, the newly sanctioned prophet of God, and he gives Eli the same message, that judgment is coming to your family, Eli. But Samuel, he's a young man. Uh, it's believed that he's between early teens and late teens, and that's unheard of in Israel in particular, for such a young man to be a prophet. But without a doubt, he is a prophet. And God even says, I will not allow Samuel's words to fall to the ground. In other words, I will back up what Samuel says. But for Samuel, that means he got, he's got to be careful what he speaks forth, proclaiming, the Lord's word, knowing that he speaks for God. Now, I have been in some church services over the years where people would give out a prophecy. They would stand up and give out a prophecy or give out a word of knowledge. And many of those spoken words would begin with, thus saith the Lord look out. <laughs> and to me, that was a strong opening statement for anything you might want to speak afterwards. Thus saith the Lord. In my mind, that person that would say that, you better be right on. You better have all your T's crossed and all your I's dotted when you start saying, thus saith the Lord. Uh, quite a few years ago, when I was uh, an usher at Modesto Calvary Chapel, 
we had a couple traveling prophets come through the fellowship. I was ushering in the back of the building, and they wanted to have lunch with me. I said, I can't. <laughs> and I said, well, maybe some other time. They said, well, how about breakfast tomorrow morning? I said, okay. <laughs> and these two fellows were like a tag team in wrestling. The younger of the two promoting the older of the two as a prophet. And all during breakfast, I was bombarded with very general prophecies. You know, prophecies that you could read on a fortune cookie type prophecies. And the older prophet uh, saying nothing in specific about me or my life, nothing that I recall whatsoever. But after breakfast, the younger fellow asked me, well, what do you think? And I said, about what? <laughs> he said, about all the prophecies that have been spoken about you. And I said, sorry, you haven't told me anything. You, you've spoken nothing of substance concerning me. Nothing that relates to my life that I'll remember. And But I thanked him for breakfast and left. <laughs> Samuel, God's prophet, has told Eli that destruction, judgment awaits his household. Eli, the high priest, affirms that Samuel's words are from the Lord. But I wasn't able to affirm these supposed prophets to anything. It was such generalities, you know, that what have you said to me? Nothing. If a prophet comes to you from God, he will have something pertinent to say. It's that simple. Not just generalities. So Samuel has God's sanction upon his ministry as a prophet, not allowing any of his words fall to the ground. I like that. God is confirming Samuel's ministry. God is telling Samuel, I've got your back. So let's read the first 11 verses of chapter 4, four of 1 Samuel. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines and encamped against Ebenezer. And the Philistines encamped at Aphlek. Then the Philistines put themselves in battle array against Israel. And when they had joined battle, Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men of the army in the field. And when the people had come into the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord from Shiloh to us, that when it comes among us, it may save us from the hand of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh, that they may bring from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts, who dwells between the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. And when the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel shouted so loudly that the earth shook. Now when the Philistines heard the noise of the shout, they said, What does the this sound of the great shout of the camp of the Hebrews mean? 
Then they understood that the ark of the Lord had come into the camp. So the Philistines were afraid, for they said, God has come into the camp. And they said, Woe is us, for such a thing has never happened before. Woe is us. Who would deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with all the plagues in the wilderness. Be strong and conduct yourself like men, you Philistines, that you do not become servants of the Hebrews." As they have been to you, conduct yourselves like men and fight. So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated, and every man fled to his tent, that there was a great slaughter, and there fell on Israel 30,000 foot soldiers. Also the ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. Israel, they go out to battle the Philistines. It was sort of a springtime ritual that the, the different armies would go out and fight. But Israel suffers uh, a cruel defeat. 4,000 of their soldiers are killed by the edge of the sword. In verse C, we have the elders of Israel. They have a question. Why has God defeated us before the Philistines? And here is their thinking. Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant from Shiloh that this little holy box that God dwells in will save us from the Philistines. Great idea, they think. So off they go to get the Ark. When the Ark arrives, all Israel breaks out into celebration. Yippee! God is here and now he's with us. The Philistines hear the commotion. And become afraid. And they say, woe is us. God has arrived in the Israel camp. But what was supposed to frighten the Philistine beyond words has become a rallying cry of the Philistines. Be strong and conduct yourselves like men of war and fight. So the Philistines fought courageously and soundly defeated Israel. Not 4,000 this time, but 30,000 Israel foot soldiers die in battle. 30,000. The ark of the Lord is captured, and Eli and his sons are killed. Religious relics, idols, crosses, ark of the covenant, are not good luck charms. Israel has brought the Ark of the Covenant, a symbol of God's presence. They've brought it into battle, but they have done so at their own discretion. We don't see the elders of Israel prayerfully asking God, should we bring the Ark up? Are you going to be with us, God? Should we battle against the Philistines? They don't ask these questions. The elders go and get the Ark of the Lord and bring it up into the battle site. And they do it for personal gain. God, you and the Ark are our defense. You are our good luck charm. You're our 
ace in the hole. Let me emphasize a point here. God will never, ever, did I say never, ever? Never, ever allow you to manipulate him. He's God. He won't be manipulated by man. In the book of Joshua, when Joshua is about to take over and go down and take uh, Jericho, uh, Joshua encounters the commander of the Lord's army. And Joshua asks this commander a question. Are you for us or for our adversary? Let me read Joshua five thirteen through 15. Three verses here. Let me read them to you. And it came to pass when Joshua was, was by Jericho that he lifted his eyes and looked. Behold, a man stood opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversary? So he said, No. No. <laughs> No, but the commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? Then the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take your sandals off your foot, for the place where you stand is holy. And Joshua did so. Are you for us or for our adversary? Peculiar answer, no. Neither, Joshua. Wrong question. <laughs> it's sad when we can't even ask good questions or the questions that are uh, for that moment. Joshua is about to go down and take Jericho, and his question to the commander of the Lord's army, are you for us or are you against us? Joshua is caught up in his quest as an army general to take Jericho. And he wants to know, God, are you on our side or are you for our adversaries? It would seem like a logical question, but it really isn't. So how do we relate that to today? America is in what we would call political division today. Many conservatives feel God is on our side. Conversely, many liberals feel abandoned by the current administration. So is the commander of the Lord's army for or against the current administration? No, neither. He's God. Worship him. Joshua received the message from the Lord loud and clear, and he worshiped God. One thing President Trump said that I totally agree with. Someone was pointing out to him how mean, how cruel, and how power-hungry the Russians are. And Trump replied, Do you think all our leaders are good and peace-loving? And he just asked a question. Are all of America's leaders good? Well, not if you look around. 
Israel has brought the ark of the Lord, this little box that represents God's presence, right to the battlefront. Thinking God will now deliver us because of the ark. The symbol of God's presence. Israel, the elders of Israel are trying to manipulate God for their own benefit, and he won't allow it. When I was younger, I, I was involved in sports, loved sports, played a lot of baseball and so forth. And I had a real good friend that was really a good athlete, but he was Catholic. He would make the sign of the cross every time he went up to bat. That was just his ritual. He was going to do this sign of the cross. And translation to that is, Lord, give me a hit. I want a hit. <laughs> I golf today, and when I go out and play golf with some fellows and they find out that I'm a pastor, they will say little things to me like, no fair praying for a good score. I understand that. <laughs> there was a special on TV a while back about Texas high school football. And they showed this team captain on the school bus going to their game. And this captain of the football team, he prays for his team. And his prayer went something like, Lord, help us to crush the Philistines. In this game, their opponent was the town next door. It was not the Philistines. That is how wrong we can be in our prayers, in our thinking, in our manipulation of God. King David, in his zeal for the Lord, wants to build a temple. God sends Nathan the prophet to David. And he says, would you build me a house to dwell in? Basically, God is telling David, I don't dwell in a house made by man's hands. The most that the ark or the temple of God could ever be is a symbol of God's presence. God who created the heavens and the earth has told us, I don't dwell in man-made houses. But man, most men are superstitious and they create things that they think are holy and they take things that perhaps are symbolic of holy things and make it into a personal idol. How many of you saw Raiders of the Lost Ark? Uh, Y'all did, I know you did. <laughs> the Germans, when they found the Ark of the Covenant, their skin melts. You remember the, the eye sockets and all that kind of thing? How many of you are from a Catholic background? Do you really think St. Uh, Christopher on your dash protects you? If you do, just drive reckless, you'll see. <laughs> for years after the crucifixion of Jesus 
splinters of the original cross were supposedly sold throughout the Middle East and all of Europe, and you would pay big money just to get a splinter of the cross because it would bring you prosperity and good luck. Let me just openly say God is not into charms. He's not into relics. And they don't really bring you any protection or blessings. In Colossians 1.27, Paul gives us a great truth. And he says, a great mystery that has been hidden for ages is now revealed to us by God, to us his saints. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Notice where is Christ? He's in you. We Christians have the Holy Spirit of God. And he dwells right within us in our very inner being, or as scripture often says, in our hearts. God is not willing nor desiring to be put into a box, not even if we call it the Ark of the Covenant. And he's not limited to the Holy of Holies in the temple there when it was in Jesus' day at Jerusalem. When Jesus died on the cross, a great earthquake happened. And the veil, this foot-wide veil that was in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. God taking away the separation between himself and man. The trouble with the religion is the Jewish people began to immediately try to repair the veil. They wanted that veil of separation there. But Jesus, when the time was perfect, when the hour had come, came and he dwelt among mankind. Consider God took on flesh just like you and I. He became a man like all of us. And he had all the desires and all the appetites. He even had the same temptations you and I have. Yet he lived without sin. And that alone is amazing when you consider it. But he had to be without sin to be the perfect sacrifice for all of the world's sins. Not only all the world's, but all of your sins and all of my sins. What a great Savior we have. And by his spirit, he dwells within us. He doesn't dwell in man-made objects. He dwells in the hearts of men. We see this in a variety of ways. You ever sin and feel bad about it? Yep. I do that quite often. <laughs> it's the Holy Spirit. It's the presence of God within us pricking our hearts Say, make things right between you and God, for you have sinned. He tugs upon our hearts. Repent. Enjoy the times of refreshing. Even back in the early days of his prophets, 
God doesn't allow man to put him in a box. The Ark of the Covenant it was symbolic of God's presence. God wouldn't even allow the Holy of Holies, the most sacred place in the temple of the Jews, was just that. It's a place. It wasn't the throne of God. And that veil being torn from top to bottom when Jesus paid the sacrificial price for our sins, and he did so for an up-close relationship with you and I. He did it where we can have the Holy Spirit dwell within us. Our Lord is into being a personal God. He's into being the good shepherd. He's into being a friend closer than a brother. In our, in our reading this morning that Don read, I call you friends. I call you friends. What an honor to be called the friend of God. In fact, he says, when you pray, say, our Father. That's intimacy. That's closeness. That's family. Say, our Father. And he says, even when you pray, say, Abba or Daddy. Think of that. God wants us to call him Daddy. That's almost sacrilegious to a lot of people that have God in such a high and lofted place that they can't get personal with him. But we're going to have people in the prayer room who are willing to pray with you for any requests you might have and especially pray for you if you desire a personal relationship with the living God. Amen? Amen. Let me get you to stand. We'll close in prayer. Father, we're so grateful that you desire a personal relationship with us. So grateful that you came and dwelt among us to have that relationship. So, Lord, let us contemplate, let us think about what it's like to have a relationship with the living God. And let us run into your arms, Lord. Let us seek you out. Let us cherish the fact that we have you as our Father. And we have you, Jesus, as our friend, as our Savior, as our Lord. Bring that home to us as we just think upon your goodness this coming week, Lord. May we just come to that understanding. You're more than a friend. You're more than a brother. You're our Lord and God, and you're personal, and you're up close. Thank you for being so real to us, Lord. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.